Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 will be in the first 18 verses this morning as we continue our study in the Sermon on the Mount. We'll be looking this morning at the danger of spiritual pride. The danger of spiritual pride. And as we do, we'll see this big idea that spiritual pride smothers grace, but authentic humility cultivates grace. Spiritual pride smothers grace, but authentic humility cultivates grace. I'll begin reading in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door. And pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. I can remember as a kid a season of our church life where uh, our pastor, I think it was for a missions fundraiser initially, and then it continued for a, a number of other causes. But once a month, we would do what they called a loose change offering. Now, this was back in the day when people actually had cash and had change. I very rarely have any cash at all on me at this point in life, so a loose change offering would be, I don't know, like a, a loose debit or credit card. It just, just wouldn't work. You don't drop those in the offering plate. But I can remember as, as a child, I, I particularly loved that Sunday. Now, collecting change in our house wasn't a big deal, but there were some houses that would come with kind of giant baggies of, of change, Ziploc bags or giant tins of change. And I loved the sound of people pouring their change into the offering plate as it kind of went through our auditorium there and, and people giving to the loose change offering. Now, there's a part of me that wonders when I come to a passage like this, is that what Jesus was talking about here? Well, I think probably not because the reality is you could give a rather large amount of change and it'd you know, be like eight or ten bucks. So if you're showing off by dumping your change in the offering plate, please choose a better way to show off. That's just not going to do it. But as we look at this this morning, the end of chapter 5 and the end of chapter 6 really paint a pretty stark contrast for us. 
So if you look right at the end of chapter 5, verse 48, you see this. You must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And then chapter 6 says, don't practice your righteousness before others in order to be seen by them. So we have this kind of contrasting picture. It's almost as if the Sermon on the Mount is intended to drive us to frustration. I mean, Jesus says, you have to be perfect, but don't let anyone know about it. It's kind of like, man, if I'm going to all this work, certainly I want people to know I'm going to all this work, but Jesus kind of drives us to this internal frustration. I mean, Jesus knows the condition of the human heart. If we're being good, we want people to know about it, don't we? I mean, in our world today, we have, we have ways of doing this, maybe that they didn't even in the first century. So uh, you, you've heard of the selfie, where you take a picture of yourself. You know, if you're the person, kind of person who likes to go to the gym and you, you take a picture after you work out, they call that the swelfy, because you're swole, you know, after you work out. I mean, we like to let people know what's going on in our lives. If we get a new car, you know, we get it shined up so it looks nice when we go out. Or if we get a new house, maybe we like to let people know about the new house. So how is it? that we interact with a passage like this. Well, there's one kind of basic point that Jesus teaches throughout this section, and it's this, that we shouldn't be a hypocrite. Don't be a hypocrite. So the basic point of the passage is, don't be a hypocrite. Well, what is a hypocrite? A hypocrite is someone who acts like one thing, but is in reality another. The, the word in its original context uh, came from uh, Greek plays. So there's a character on the stage who's acting as one thing, but in reality is something different. So that was the hypocrite. That was the person who was pretending to be something that he's not. Well, over time, this came to be associated with people who were kind of morally fake, people who hold themselves up as one thing, but in reality are something else. According to verse 1, the essence of hypocrisy is practicing Christianity so that other people see you, doing it in a way that they look at you. Well, there are all kinds of hypocrisy in the world. Uh, online today, we've come up with a, a term called virtue signaling. If someone accuses you of, oh, you're just virtue signaling, you're, they're saying you're just signaling that you have virtue. They're calling you a hypocrite, but it's just kind of another word for uh, the same thing. I mean, there's the poser who shows up at the gym, and he's got the, the shoes and the shorts, but he can't play ball. Or the person who has a really nice violin or guitar, but they really can't play it. I'm a poser. I have a guitar in my office. People walk in and think, you play the guitar. I do not play the guitar. I own a guitar. That's not the same thing as playing the guitar. So you can be a poser or hypocrite kind of in any area of life. Well, the specific context that Jesus is addressing this morning is the context of public worship. In other words, he's addressing himself to people who commit themselves to gathering with the people of God for worship each week. Well, it's possible, okay, don't be a hypocrite, it's possible to respond to this by saying then, well, I just won't worship like this. But that's not what he's teaching either because he assumes that it's something that we do. So if you look at verse 2, when you give, or verse 5, when you pray, or verse 16, when you fast. So he assumes that these are things that we should do, so we should practice righteousness, we should do good things, but what he's getting at is the same thing he's gotten at before. He's getting at the heart of why it is that we do what we do. Jesus also seems to be dressing professing Christians. So there's an assumption throughout this passage that these people have the same father as he does, a heavenly father. In other words, hypocrisy is a, a problem in the family of God. 
So what are the three areas that Jesus addresses here? And the first is the area of giving, when you give. Jesus assumes that we will give. When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you. So the question is not if we give, but how we give. And then he tells a story that sounds rather ridiculous, but probably had actually happened. Someone, likely a wealthy donor, because they could also pay the, uh, the person to come in with, with them, you know, has a rather large donation to make, walks into the synagogue and plays the trumpet, here I am, and boom, I mean, he drops it in there so everyone hears it hit the bottom of the offering collection box. Well, the two places these kind of people give are the synagogue and the street. Now, the location itself isn't important. Most people would give in a house of worship, in a synagogue, or the temple. But rather, the important thing for these people is that everyone sees that they're giving and how much they're giving. Jesus also addresses when we pray in verses 5 through 15. In here, we find the hypocrites in the exact same place as when they give, standing in the synagogues or on the corners of the street. In other words, they're looking for the, the corner of Savannah Highway and something. They're not, they're not on any back road. They're right out front. They want everyone to know that they are praying and everyone to see them praying. Now, the, the, the point here isn't the literal posture. He talks about them standing there. I mean, in Scripture, we see people pray when they're standing. Some pray when they're sitting. Some kneel to pray. Some are prostrate when they pray. Jesus isn't confronting the idea like you can't stand and pray. What he's confronting is people who are praying more for the people around them than, and seeking that attention rather than talking to the Lord. He also talks about fasting, verse 16, when you fast. Fasting is, uh, it's, it's not when you do something really quickly. It's something rather that you do when you kind of forego food for a spiritual purpose. So, you know, if you're looking, okay, in a few days here, we're here at Thanksgiving, so Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I'm going to go a little light on food so I can really pig out on Thursday. Well, that's not what he's talking about here. Rather, he's talking about foregoing uh, a normal food or diet for a spiritual purpose. In other words, you have a particular need in your life that you really need guidance on, and so either you forego a meal or meals for a period of day or days, or you leave some part of your diet out to drive you to dependence on God. So your, your physical hunger is a reminder of your spiritual hunger. So fasting is foregoing food for a, a, a spiritual purpose. Well, if you skip a meal, it feels a little bit like suffering. It feels like, you're, man, you're really giving it all for Jesus. Well, what these people would do when they were fasting is, you know, people can see if you're praying. People can see if you're giving, but people can't see you not eat. I mean, if it were feasting, that would work, but fasting, people can't see that. So what they would do is to let people know they were going through this and how much they were devoting themselves to God. They would kind of mark up their faces, maybe put, they would try to look as miserable as possible so everyone knows there is a truly devoted person. Well, the problem with living this way is that your reward is already received. You've already got what you're going to get. If you practice your Christianity so that people will see you, that's your reward. That's what you want. That's what you get. They see you. Good job. You've made an impression on the people around you. Jesus says, nice work, but God's not impressed. God's not impressed with this. You've just impressed the people around you. So the difficulty with this is that, I mean, we can think, there, we all have, at some level, spiritual pride. Now, there are some people who have the spiritual gift of spiritual pride, kind of like a super abundant measure of spiritual pride. But at some level, if we're honest, we all have some of this. In other words, we can walk into a, a worship service, and we can raise our hands in worship to God. Or we could raise our hands so that people know that we are worshiping God. 
Or maybe you're like, yeah, that, that, that ain't my stroke. And so maybe you're the kind of, you know, you do, you're the pocket worshiper. And so as, as you sing, you keep your hands in your pockets. You know, and you can do that in sincere devotion and worship to God. Or you can do it so that people know that you're not like one of those crazy people who's just looking for attention when they worship. See, you can raise your hands or not raise your hands, and either way, what Jesus is getting at is not so much the particular posture or the particular activity, but rather the heart that engages in our worship. In other words, you can raise your hands and be a hypocrite, or raise your hands and worship God sincerely, or not raise your hands, but the point is what's going on in our heart. So what's the solution here? Well, Jesus says the solution is to worship in secret. Jesus uses one title for God throughout this passage. He calls him Father, and he uses kind of two different descriptions to describe what this Father is like. He says he's a heavenly Father, and he's also a Father in secret, or one who sees in secret. Now, what he's not saying is that Jesus has, or that the Father is in some kind of hard-to-find secret place. Rather, what he's saying is that God sees you in public, but he also sees you in private. He sees you in secret. He, he understands who we are in both places. In other words, the key is that we have a heart that works its way out in worship in times of gathered worship, but also in times of private or personal worship. Jesus assumes that we gather for worship, but he also says it's important that we do it in private. So, so what's the bottom line here? Well, at one level, certainly this means that if the only time you worship God is when you gather in a public worship service, it's possible that this passage is talking about you. Or if the main purpose of reading your Bible or going to your prayer closet is so that you can tell people that you're reading your Bible or going to your prayer closet, it's possible that this passage is talking about you. I mean, it's good discipline for all of us to worship the Lord sometimes when no one is looking except God himself. Well, if you do this, is there any benefit in this? And Jesus says that there is. The benefit is that you get a reward in heaven. God rewards us. So if we serve for the people around us, we get a reward. But that's all we get. We want them to know and they know. So that's the reward. But we get a reward also. And what kind of reward is it that God gives? It's a heavenly reward. In other words, God gives the kind of reward that can never be destroyed. So right after this, in Matthew 6, 19, 20 and following, Jesus talks about laying treasure up in heaven, not on earth. And what he says is that heavenly treasure cannot be destroyed. Moth, rust, they don't corrupt that. It, it's eternal. It lasts forever. And so people who devote themselves in sincere worship to God get a heavenly treasure that cannot be destroyed or stolen. The reward is eternal joy, pleasure, or peace. Ultimately, the reward is God himself. God blesses us with more of God. If you pursue God sincerely, the blessings that God will give you are far beyond your wildest dreams. Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 1. He says, the blessings that we have through Christ in him, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. I mean, listen to this language. Redemption, forgiveness, riches, grace, lavish. The thing God lavishly pours on his children is grace, blessing, redemption, forgiveness. Unbelievable. They can never imagine us. Imagine this. The greatest award for any of God's children is eternal life with God in heaven through his son, Jesus Christ. So if you're here this morning, you haven't experienced that blessing, the riches of this kind of grace. 
Would you turn from chasing your reward in anything else and find it in Jesus and Jesus alone? Trust Jesus. He will not only secure your eternal destiny. He will do that. But he will bless you far more than you can ever imagine. It might not be the blessing that you imagine for yourself, but brothers and sisters, I promise you, it is greater than anything that you could ever picture. Ephesians 3, Paul prays for the church and and, and talks about this blessing that is greater than anything that we could ask or imagine. And if you find Jesus, you will find that kind of blessing. Well, how do we know if we're hypocrites? Well, you might be a hypocrite, you spend more time thinking about how others put you down than how others have to put up with you. Or you might be a hypocrite if you'd be happy to have your name on a plaque, but you wouldn't want people to know your giving records. Or you might be a hypocrite if it's more important that people know that you pray than that you pray. Spiritual pride is the source of hypocrisy. In a culture that loves to be known for everything that we do. I mean, uh, as, as uh, we heard some young people say, if, if we didn't take a picture, did it even happen? I mean, that's, that's the, you know, if, if there's nothing to record it, you know, on social media, it didn't actually happen. But in a culture that loves to be known like this, it'd be good for all of us to spend some time worshiping the Lord and not tell anyone about it. Just spend that time with God. Not post any pictures of it, not post any updates, sweet time this morning. Because the good news is that even if no one else sees, your heavenly Father who sees in secret will reward you. The truth is that we're all hypocrites. I mean, at some level. I mean, the fact that we're sitting here with our hair brushed or combed, teeth brushed, and some level of presentability means that, you know, at some level we're all presenting a picture that is different than the one we see at home. Thank God for that. You know, the other word we call that is brotherly love. You know, you're just serving one another in love, making yourself presentable. But at some level, we all struggle with kind of reality and who we really are and then this kind of public image. But one of the things that is most difficult about Christianity is not kind of, is not that at some level we all struggle with hypocrisy. It's that sometimes, and this is what really turns people off, not only are we different, but we also have this air of moral superiority. And that is just a cancer that will eat at your soul and it will kill Christian mission, it will kill Christian witness. There's nothing that turns to ash more in someone's mouth than someone who acts or thinks they're better than someone else. And the truth is, because we submit our lives to the Word of God, there are things that, that the Word asks us to do that are inconvenient, culturally speaking. Culture changes, but the Word of God doesn't. So the, the Word of God confronts every culture at some level. But brothers and sisters, let the Word of God do the confronting. Let it not be because we have some sort of high horse or we sit down and look out on the world that, that you know, thank God that we're not like them. I mean, the ground at the foot of the cross is level. And there we all come to God as sinners in need of grace. And so we sing songs like grace that is greater than our sin because we have a big view of our sin and a low view of the sin of others because we know how much we need grace. Remember Matthew chapter 5, Jesus talked about doing good works. He said, do good works so that people can see. But the difference between Matthew 5 and Matthew 6 is the people in Matthew 6 are doing it so people can look at them. And the people in Matthew 5 are doing it so that people can see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. 
problem with us, we think, we think we're the painting, but we're just, we're just the window. And so we, we, we get here, and, and you know, we're like, look at me, look at me, look at me. And Jesus' image is look through us, see God, magnify the works of God, magnify the goodness of God, magnify the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, we're not the point. We're just, we're just avenues. We're just lenses. We're just windows to, to point people to the goodness and greatness of our Savior. We're, we're not the point. We're just, we're just pointing people there. The grace of humility smells good. But the stench of moral superiority will send non-Christians running for the hills. And so let's take a minute. Don't think about the people up there. Think about this person here. Think about these people here. How is it that spiritual pride manifests itself among us? Well, the bulk of this passage is don't be a hypocrite. But there is another section here about prayer. He says, pray like this. Well, the Lord's Prayer is the most famous prayer in the history of the world. There's a part of it, I get into it, and we probably, a number of us know it in some version of, uh, 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 some version of Scripture or another. Well, how is it that sincere followers of Jesus talk to their Heavenly Father? First, he says they're submitted to God. Our Father in Heaven, hallowed be your name. God's people reverence God's name. It's not something we take lightly or speak in vain. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, we prize God's kingdom and God's mission above our own. We're not into building our little individual kingdoms or our little kingdom uh, as a church. We're just a small part of all that God is doing in the earth. And we're just privileged to be just one speck on, that, on, on the globe of all that God is at work doing. He says also that we should depend on God. Give us this day our daily bread. Verse 13, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I mean, for most of us, food and scarcity isn't really a thing. It's not something that's a daily struggle for us. But we all need God's help for daily provision, whether it's our physical needs or financial needs, but certainly from spiritual needs and certainly for protection from temptation. He also says we should pray in a way that is forgiving like God. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Well, let's drill down here for a minute. Debt is a relatively rare word in the New Testament. It appears only twice, actually, one of which is here. Matthew is referring to something that we owe to God and have failed to pay to him. So we have this debt in our relationship. In other words, God deserves more than we could ever give him, and so there's this lack, there's this debt, there's this deficit in our relationship with God. So think back to the end of chapter 6. What do we owe God? Perfection. You must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Well, what can we pay? I mean, we're like way down here. I mean, we aren't like falling short of perfect. We're like falling on our face short of perfect. We're getting nowhere near this. So there's this gap between what God deserves and what we can actually give him. I mean, God doesn't owe us anything. It's quite the other way around. There's this infinite debt that we owe God, of worship and of gratitude that, 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 we, that we can't pay. So when we ask God to forgive our debt, we're asking him to forgive this massive debt load. Well, Jesus, I mean, he, he, he just has a way of kind of getting right down in our mess. So he takes us a step further. He, he, he takes us one area of the prayer for, for, that we forgive us as we forgive others, and then he teases it out in verses 14 to 15. If you forgive others 
their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I mean, the stakes here are unbelievably high. If we don't forgive others, God doesn't forgive us. Luke chapter 18, Jesus is teaching this same idea, but he does it with, with a story, a parable. A servant owes a, a king a great debt. He says it's 10,000 talents. It takes an average worker in first century 20 years to earn one talent. So this debt is a 200,000 year debt. In other words, it's impossible that this person could pay this off in multiple, multiple lifetimes. And he goes to the king and he says, I have this great debt. King, would you forgive this debt? And the king says, sure, I'll forgive the debt. The servant leaves and he goes and finds another servant. Now this servant owes him 100 denarii. Now this is essentially three months wages. So this person owes him three months. He owes 200,000 years. And this servant says to the other servant, hey, would you forgive this debt? And he's like, no, I'm going to throw you in prison, in debtor's prison, and you, until you pay me everything. And he throws him in prison. Well, the king hears about this. And so the king goes back to the first servant, and he says, you unforgiving servant. He's unbelievably angry, and he says, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And then Jesus says, so also will my heavenly Father to, do to you if you do not forgive every one of you, his brother, his debt. I mean, the stakes are unimaginably high. Our failure to forgive others, at some level, of course, it's about some experience of peace and joy in relationships on this earth. But ultimately, what is at stake is eternal destiny, the idea that God has forgiven us. Brothers and sisters, we have this infinite debt that God forgives us. And Jesus says, how can you not evidence the fact that God has forgiven you by forgiving one another? Forgiveness looks like people who are more deeply moved by their sin against God than by the sin of others against us. Forgiveness looks like rehearsing God's goodness to us more than we rehearse the wrongs that other people have committed against us. And we're good. We got great memories for remembering wrongs. And we so quickly forget the blessings of God in our lives. I mean, we even remember things that people have never done. Do you ever do this? You manufacture a conversation that never happened and you find yourself getting annoyed. And then you're like, you idiot, that never happened. You're making all this up in your mind. We're so good at rehearsing these things, but brothers and sisters, to rehearse the grace and goodness of God to us changes us from the inside out. Forgiveness looks like people who happily serve each other because of the, of the way that God has graciously served us in the gospel. It looks like this last Tuesday night, my family and I were at, a, at an event with our state convention in, in downtown Charleston at the Mother Emanuel AME Church. And there for the first time, Reverend Anthony Thompson, whose wife was killed the night, June 17, 2015, was killed as she led a Bible study in the basement of that church. Dylan Roof came in there and he murdered nine people. And he shared for the first time in person that evening the events that had led him to show up at Dylan Roof's bond hearing and say to him, I forgive you. But brother, you don't really need my forgiveness. You need God's forgiveness. Let me, let me urge you to repent of your sin and trust Jesus. Well, that kind of forgiveness comes from people that understand how much God has forgiven them. 
And if that man can stand there before that, that, that boy who shot and killed his wife, how is it that we struggle so much that forgive small things, forgive little things, to overlook little debts? I mean, we're sitting around here demanding 100, uh, 100 denarii, 100 denarii, 100 denarii, and God says, 10,000 talents paid in full. And one day we're going to stand and we're going we're to demand of all these people, pay your debt, pay your debt. And God looks at us, he says, you fool, don't you realize all that I have forgiven you? I demanded perfection. You could never once meet that. And yet Jesus met it for you. That's grace. That's generosity. That's forgiveness. That's mercy. See, Jesus is addressing the heart of the issue. We judge others far more harshly for their sin. And God judges us who are in Christ. Like, who made us judge? Who made us king? Yet at the end of the day, none of us can meet God's standard for perfection. All of us need Jesus to meet it for us. So we run to Jesus who meets it for us. And when we run there, it changes our hearts. So, let me just change our focus for a minute because what happens is we think about, okay, how do I deal with that person? How do I forgive this? Well, this person hasn't even asked for forgiveness. This, is, this person has a hard heart. Okay, stop there. Like, you gotta go there probably at some point, but just begin to rehearse the grace of God that you have received through Christ. Run to the cross and 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 run to the cross. And what will happen is God changes you from the inside out. So when you begin to encounter these feelings, when you begin to encounter these people, when you begin to encounter these experiences, the experience doesn't change, but your heart has changed. Your posture toward those people has changed. God has been so gracious to us. How can we not be gracious toward each other? So let's take a minute now and respond to God's word in repentance and faith. I'll give you a minute to talk to God personally, and then I'll close this time in prayer. So let's talk to God now.